Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 and 25, New International Version. The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. Genesis chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, New International Version. Hello! Welcome to another episode of Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm Victoria Kay in the studio today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books. R.D., we've been taking a look at the story of Noah and the Ark with a focus on whether the story is literal history or just sort of an elaborate flood myth of the kind that's present in cultures all over the world. Today, you wanted to spend some time on one of the details of the flood story that often creates questions. And it might be fair to say, no small amount of confusion. Today, we're going to talk about the animals and what the Bible is actually referring to when it talks about all kinds of animals being saved. Yep. And I'm glad you said all kinds of animals being saved, because it turns out that the word kind is a very important word to properly understand what's going on with the animals that got on the boat, and what happened in the world after the animals got off the boat. So that word kind turns out to be more than just a shorthand way of referring to a wide variety. It's actually a very important word that describes the nature of the animals that were saved. Well, before we get into the review of Noah, how about if we listen to another devotional piece from Purposeful Prayers? Today, we're going to listen to a meditation on God's sovereignty because it was a sovereign God who made the determination to save Noah from the destruction that would destroy almost everyone else. Uh, Let's go for it. It is popular today to view God as sort of a kindly grandfather, watching the activities of his children applauding them when they do good, 
shaking his head ruefully when they mess up, always ready with a chocolate chip cookie and a hug to let them know he loves them. As appealing as this image is, it is not a faithful depiction of the God of the Bible. Among other things, it misses entirely one of the most important attributes of God, His royal sovereignty. Modern Christians have a tendency to gloss over or ignore God's sovereignty, in part because widespread political democracy has largely eradicated any understanding of or desire for a king. Yet God is king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. To desire to have a relationship with the God of the Bible is to desire to be a subject of the rightful sovereign. To accept Jesus as your savior means to accept Jesus as Lord. He will not be the one without being the other. God invites us to call him father, but commands us to revere him as one who not only lives in our hearts, but who also reigns from a throne. The first century Israelites were shocked to hear Jesus address God as his father. They were comfortable with the notion of God as king and so conscious of his exalted status. They would not speak his personal name, Yahweh. They knew God as sovereign, but were unfamiliar with him as father. Contemporary believers, by contrast, are perfectly comfortable calling God father. But recognizing God as king and sovereign seems out of place in these enlightened times. Frankly, it not only seems out of place, but also makes us decidedly uncomfortable. Whether it is comfortable for us or not, the principal way in which God is portrayed in the Bible is as a king seated on a throne. Images of God on the throne of heaven are found in both the Old and New Testaments. After his ascension, Jesus is spoken of as being seated at the right hand of the Father. Being seated at the right hand, the place of honor, is a description of royalty. In biblical times, petitioners appeared before the throne standing. Even counselors and advisors to the king would stand. The only ones who remained seated in the presence of the king were the members of the royal party. So when the Bible says Jesus is seated at the right hand, it is affirming not only God's royal position, but also Jesus' own regal nature. Far from simply being a metaphor of his exalted status, descriptions of God as King and Lord properly reflect that God is sovereign over all creation. Like all of his other attributes, God's sovereignty is absolute. While he uses both men and angels as agents to advance his kingdom, make no mistake about it, he sets the agenda without seeking approval from anyone else. After all, who is pure enough to give the perfectly holy advice? Who knows something the omniscient doesn't? Who can say no to the omnipotent? God's sovereignty makes most of us very uncomfortable when we first learn about it primarily because we are so accustomed to seeing ourselves as sovereign over our own lives. Encountering God's kingship is frustrating because it means we must yield our wills to someone else. Yet the more we meditate on God's sovereignty, the more comfortable we should become with it. Let's take an example from our daily lives. Assume you are praying for a raise in pay. 
If God were not sovereign, then your boss's decision on this issue would mean more than God's. However, because God is sovereign, we can be absolutely certain that if God wants us to have a raise in pay, it will be forthcoming. Your boss cannot thwart an absolute sovereign's will. Because God is sovereign, we need not fret over approaching our boss or be concerned unduly if our request is denied. If the absolute sovereign wants us to make more money, he will provide it, if not in one way, then in another. God's sovereignty means we can pray with confidence for loved ones who show no interest in Christ, for children who are facing peer pressures, for families pressured by tough economic times, and for evangelists traveling in lands hostile to the gospel. If God were not sovereign, then Satan, politicians, tyrants, or wayward adolescents could overrule his decisions. Fortunately, they cannot, nor can we. The question for us is whether we will acknowledge our Heavenly Father's sovereignty and submit to His authority. Jesus set the example for us in the Garden of Gethsemane when He declared, Yet not my will, but yours be done. If He could surrender, so should we, knowing that the Father's love for us abides constantly as He exercises His sovereignty over us and all His creation. It's amazing to think about the early days of God's creation and how God has sovereignly superintended everything throughout history. I mean, the universe has been around for so long now that we pretty much take for granted everything that we see. We treat our world, in fact the entire cosmos, as if it had always been here. But the truth is that it hasn't, and it won't be in the future. God created everything for a purpose and he is guiding everything to a conclusion that will fully fulfill all his plans. That's part of the reason we wanted to tackle the story of Noah and the flood early on in Anchored by Truth. Noah's story is a perfect illustration of God's sovereignty over both his people and creation, and his ability to bring all his purposes to fruition. And of course, the biggest catastrophe that shaped the earth's crust in the past was the global flood that's described in Genesis in chapters 6 through 8. But the notion that there was this global flood does open up some questions, doesn't it? Like, what about the animals? How does the Bible flood account today square with the biodiversity and biogeography that we see in the world today? I think it's fair to say that even though most people in our culture are aware of the role the ark played in saving animals, there is a great deal of confusion about this subject. And unfortunately, there are even some mischaracterizations of what the Bible says that are used in popular media and TV shows. What did you hear on one episode of The Big Bang Theory? Well, I don't watch a lot of The Big Bang Theory, but I happened to be watching one time when, and I just tuned in the middle of the episode, so I'm not entirely sure what the major theme of the episode was. But I think most people who are familiar with The Big Bang Theory knows that Sheldon Cooper, uh, Dr. Sheldon Cooper, is the genius physicist on the show. And he's the one, of course, who represents science and those people who subscribe to the idea that science provides all the answers that we need to live our lives in the modern world. So Sheldon one day was complaining about his mother, but he did actually say something sweet about his mother, who is a simple Bible-believing Christian from East Texas. But after saying something generally sweet about his mother, 
Sheldon goes on to say, but of course, my mother believes that all the animals in the world got on one boat. So obviously the laugh track then plays and the audience gets a good laugh at this simplistic Bible-believing woman who actually believes that all the animals in the world got on one boat. So of course there are a variety of issues with that particular line. I mean, first of all, it's intended to be comedic, so I don't want to make too much out of it. But the writers would not have included it as a comedic line if they didn't think there were people in their audience who would get a laugh at what they would probably classify as simpletons who accept the Bible's flood account as literal history. So just in a real brief observation, first of all, of course, the Bible does not say that all the animals in the world got on Noah's Ark. The Bible only talks about representatives of the animal kinds that got on the Ark. So one of the problems with that line would be, are the writers making fun of Sheldon's mother, or are they making fun of Sheldon, who actually believes, even though he's a PhD physicist, genius who works at Caltech, who actually believes that the Bible says that all the animals in the world got on a single boat. I'm not sure maybe they're making fun of both of them. But the point is that we as Christians need to be aware of the representations that are being made about our faith in the larger world, and we need to be prepared to address the misconceptions that are there. Sometimes they're intentional, sometimes they're inadvertent. But even if they're inadvertent, we need to be equipped with the information that allows us to give an intelligent response. And I think in the case of the comedic line from the Big Bang Theory, Of course, there's a wide variety of information that would rebut Sheldon's presumption that the story of Noah, the Ark, and a worldwide flood is not, in fact, literal history. And we've been talking about that in our last several episodes. But of course, Sheldon does raise the legitimate question of how many animals got on the Ark. Even if it wasn't, as Sheldon claimed, all the animals in the world, it would have been a considerable number. And it is a legitimate question, you know, how many animals actually did get on the ark? Well, the question itself has two basic dimensions. One dimension is the animals who got on the ark, and the other are the animals who didn't get on the ark. And that was one of the reasons that we opened today's episodes with those excerpts from Genesis, where it talks about the animals who got on the ark. And if you'll remember in the second of the scripture readings, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 4, God said to Noah, take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female. So one point to note from that scripture reading is that God made a distinction between clean and unclean animals, and we'll go into the reason that he made that distinction in just a little bit. For the time being, note that the animals that Noah was instructed to bring on the ark were land animals. Of course, there wasn't any need for them to bring fish or water-dwelling mammals on the boat because those creatures would survive even in a global worldwide flood. But the animals who lived on land would need protection from that flood. So one of the criteria that was included in the description that God gave Noah was the animals who lived on land and who breathed through their nostrils. And in saying breathe through their nostrils, God was giving a criteria that exempted basically the insects. Now, I have no doubt that there were a lot of insects who climbed on board the ark anyway, even though Noah wasn't specifically instructed to include them. But Noah was not told in general to bring insects on the ark. 
He was told to bring birds on the ark. A lot of birds, of course, might be able to survive in a flood environment, but a lot of the birds would depend on the kind of food and nutrition they could only get from dry land. So Noah was instructed to bring birds on the ark as well. Now, one of the things to note is that Noah was told to bring pairs of kinds of animals. And that word kind there is sometimes mistranslated into our current English as the word species, but that's not true. A biblical kind comes from the Hebrew word men. A biblical kind is not the same as the modern-day word species. And we talked about that a little bit in one of our earlier episodes of Anchored by Truth. And modern scholars are not unified in their determination or in their opinion about whether or not the biblical kinds, how that's represented among the various species and genera of today's animal kingdom classification. But there was a gentleman named John Woodmore App who wrote a book called Noah's Ark, A Feasibility Study. And Mr. Woodmore App, in his book, he calculated that the total number of animals that would have been brought on board the ark would have been less than 16,000, and that's even assuming that a biblical kind is roughly equivalent to the group of animals we would call a genus today. However, if the biblical kind was closer to the equivalent of today's family grouping, then there would have only been a couple of thousand animals. Probably the answer to the actual number of animals that were brought on board is somewhere between two and 16,000. And of course, we had talked in uh, an earlier episode about the size of the ark, which would have had the capacity of a few million cubic feet, able to carry 150 to 200,000 sheep if it had to do so. Even if someone had to bring five or eight or 10,000 animals on board, the ark would have had the capacity to do so. The important point to emphasize in terms of thinking about how many animals actually got on board the ark is that the Lord told Noah to only bring on representatives of the kinds that he had originally created. And of course, he told Noah quite sensibly to bring on board a breeding pair. And of course, you need the breeding pair so that once the flood is over, the breeding pair can begin to repopulate the earth with animals. Why did Noah bring seven pairs of clean animals, but only one pair of unclean animals? Well, remember that this is, of course, a time before the Mosaic Law, but evidently, even at the time before the Mosaic Law had been formally prescribed, apparently God had made a distinction between certain animals that he considered to be acceptable as sacrifices to him and animals that weren't. So clean animals could be used as sacrificial animals, whereas unclean animals couldn't. So for the unclean animals, it was only necessary to bring on one breeding pair because once the flood ended and those animals got off the boat, they would not be used for sacrificial purposes. But extra pairs of clean animals were necessary because some of the pairs of clean animals would have been used for sacrifices once the flood had ended. Well, that raises the next question about what did all the animals eat while they were on the ark? We know that today there are many animals that are primarily meat eaters, but that certainly wouldn't have worked on the ark. Well, let's remember that originally all the animals on the earth, when they were originally created, were plant eaters. In Genesis uh, chapter 1, in verses 29 and 30, we'll have to remember that God said that he gave all the seed-bearing plants on the face of the earth to be food. He said it should be food for Adam and Eve, and he said it also would be food for the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky. 
and all the creatures that move along the ground. So the beasts of the earth, basically the land-dwelling animals that are on the earth, the birds of the sky, that's obvious. And then the creatures that move along the ground, essentially they're talking about insects. And God said specifically in Genesis chapter 1, verse 30, that I give every green plant for food. So originally, all the land animals and Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve's children were all plant eaters. They were herbivores. Uh, Now, at some point along the way, after the fall, obviously, death was introduced into the world. And there's a disagreement among scholars today about whether that death included animals begin eating animals. But there are some clues in some of the language that's contained within Genesis that seems to indicate that some animals had become carnivores even before the time of the flood. But that doesn't mean that just because they had begun to get used to eating meat, that they had to have meat to survive. And even today, there are animals that we typically think of as meat eaters exclusively who actually survive on plants. There's a famous lioness named Leah who now lives in South Africa who was raised in Italy on a diet of pasta and spaghetti sauce. If someone who's interested in looking into that particular instance can just Google spaghetti eating lioness and get information about Leah. It's well known that today many people, of course, will eat a diet comprised of meat as well as fruits and vegetables, but there are a lot of people today who are vegans or vegetarians. So even today, we don't regard meat as being an essential element of the diet for ourselves or for animals. And it's interesting that today some of the expensive pet food companies use in their commercial advertising that some of their cheaper competitors have too much vegetable material in their cheaper pet food. So the question about the kind of food that would have been necessary simply to keep the animals alive on board the ark, I think it's fair to say that the animals could have survived on plants, even the animals that we would think of today as being meat-eating animals. And of course, there would have been plenty of time for Noah to stock the ark because most scholars believe that it took somewhere between 50 to 75 years for Noah to actually get the ark ready. So it would have been plenty of time for him to begin the preparations, the stockpiling of the various kinds of foodstuffs that the animals would eat. And of course, Noah lived in an agrarian society, which means that Noah would have been much more familiar with the kinds of food that would have been necessary to sustain animal life than those of us who typically live in cities or urban environments today. Well, all that makes sense. But I guess that leads to the next question. If Noah brought only one pair of a particular kind, how did we wind up with all the different species of animals that we have today? Well, the species of animals that we have on the earth today obviously descended from the pairs of animals that came off the ark. But again, let's remember that the animals that were on the ark were representative of kinds, which is larger than today's species. So the species of animals that we have on the earth arose since the animals got off the ark, and they did so because of natural selection. A lot of people today associate the term or concept of natural selection exclusively with the other concept of evolution. But in fact, the concept of natural selection as an adaptive mechanism that would cause transformation into different species was well known before Charles Darwin popularized the concept in his book Origin of the Species in 1859. For instance, in a book called The Greatest Hoax in the World, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati, in chapter 2 of that book, 
notes that in 1668, an Anglican bishop named John Wilkins, who was actually the founder of the metric system, Bishop Wilkins, in talking about the development of the various varieties of cattle, Bishop Wilkins noted that all the different kinds of cattle that were in the world in his day arose from the original pair or possibly pairs of cattle who had their ancestors on the ark. In his book, The Greatest Hoax in the World, Dr. Sarfati uses a quote from Bishop Wilkins, and I'm going to read that quote. There being much less difference betwixt these than there is betwixt several dogs, and it being known by experience what various changes are frequently occasioned in the same species by several countries, diets, and other accidents. In other words, Bishop Wilkins was recognizing that different species can arrive from one original pair through the mechanism of natural selection. So natural selection, again, contrary to popular belief, is not a concept that is exclusive to the notion of evolution. Scientists who believe in biblical creation have long recognized that natural selection, the concept and the ability for natural selection for the development of different kinds of species, was built into creation when God originally created the kinds of animals that he placed in the Garden of Eden. And even a prominent evolutionary paleontologist and evolutionary biologist, Stephen Jay Gould, who was certainly no friend of biblical creationism, recognized, and again, I'm quoting from Gould now, that natural selection ranked as a standard item in biological discourse among pre-Darwinian creationists. So natural selection as an adaptive mechanism is embraced by those of us who are called creationists, and it was well known even before Charles Darwin popularized it. So all the animals, the biodiversity that rose around the world since the end of the flood arose because of the adaptation, the transformation of those original pairs of animals, those original kinds of animals that got off the boat, and they were, over time, through the mechanism of natural selection, they were transformed into the species that we have on the earth today. So notwithstanding Sheldon's obvious skepticism about the accuracy of the Bible's flood story, there are sensible answers to the questions that most people might have. And as we observed before, these answers make sense in the real world. They are consistent with current observations about science and geography and biology, and how the world just functions in general. In other words, the Bible flood account has all the hallmarks of history, so it serves to validate the accuracy and reliability of the Bible, even when the Bible describes events that are outside our normal experiences today. All that seems to call for us to express our appreciation for the One who created everything. So for our closing prayer today, How about if we spend some time adoring the Father of all the created order? A prayer of adoration of the Father. Almighty, gracious, and heavenly Father, we praise you and adore you and bow down before you. We are overcome by thoughts of your majesty and excellence, and we humbly come to you to worship you in spirit and in truth. We know from your word that you are a God in whom there is no imperfection, want, or lack. You are perfect in all of your attributes and all of your ways. Because you are the source of all light and illumination, there is no shadow or dark place in you. All creation stands in silent awe when it turns toward you. 
You dwell in the loftiest of the high places, surrounded by the angels that you created to serve you. Glory is your robe, power is your mantle, exaltation your drape, and sovereignty your cloak. Mere words could never describe your grandeur, yet we are exalted as we try. You alone are God. There is no other God like you. There never has been and there never will be. There will come a time when you will fully exercise your dominion as is fitting and right, and you will set right all that does not conform to your will. We look toward that day when we can stand breathless and amazed at your beauty and holiness. Until that time, let us grow in the knowledge and appreciation of your unmatched glory and let all honor, praise, and worship be given only to you. In Christ's name, let all who know him praise the Lord. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.